intended soon after Adam's obedience. Genesis, way back in Genesis 3. And that disobedience, it dragged the rest of the creation into rebellion with Adam's disobedience, way back in Genesis chapter 3, it dragged all of creation into rebellion with him. And because of this, the whole order and the whole beauty that once graced God's creation, while not completely wiped out, became twisted. All of it. And now the world operates according to a whole different system. And it's one that leaves little or no room for the heavenly qualities of humility, selflessness, faith, grace. You don't see that in the world out there, do you? So, but as Paul boldly really declared in Romans 1 through 5, he says, whereas sin reigned over the earth and death through sin, Jesus Christ, he came and he initiated a whole takeover. To use Paul's words, he said, grace multiplied, it abounded. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Romans 5, 20 and 21, that's where we left off last night. And the rest of the book answers the question, since grace multiplied, since grace abounded, and I'm justified in Jesus Christ. How do I live? Yeah. You guys remember? Oh, is it? It popped off. Intention. <laughs> you guys remember uh, Mel Gibson? There we go. That's William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. He was leading this ragtag group of Scots in really kind of their first Scottish War of Independence. And as a small Scottish, very peasant army, as they looked across the field that they were going to go into battle with, across that field was an enormous amount of English professional soldiers. And so now, you know, I love them. We see him, he's trying to rally the troops, and we see him, and he's galloping back and forth on his horse, and he's going to and fro in a very sexy flat, I might say. My husband read this, and he said, I can go get this for There. So, but he's giving this speech of choice. You know, guys, you have a choice of living. You can live under the bondage of this English tyranny. Or we can live in a new realm of astonishment. And he has that great speech that he, it is so good because he delivers it with great force and great passion. You know, and he's waiting on the force and his kilt. And he's sitting, he says, You can take my life, but you can't have my freedom. Remember that? Freedom! Yes, with great passion. I picture Paul writing chapter 6, 7, and 8 with even more passion, with even more force, all the way to his soul, evil leaves. And it's a leaf that grabs, isn't it? It's so, it's, it grabs so much 
that those that read, they crave this freedom in Christ. And Paul's scribe was probably, as he's writing, probably very able to keep up with him. As Paul, you know, he's a passionate person. He was probably pacing and, and wherever it was he was writing, and he was like saying, he's like, you and I, children, daughters, sons of the Lord God Almighty, we are free. We are free. We have been set free. We've been set free from the tyranny of sin. We've been set free from the law. Set free from the flesh. We've moved out of this worldly realm and liberated into a new realm. We have freedom in Christ. We have freedom as an instrument of righteousness. We have freedom to live life abundantly. We have freedom to be pleasing to God. Freedom to be set apart for the purposes of God. Freedom to reap inheritance that our Heavenly Father, He gifts it to us. He gives holiness, sanctification, completeness, eternal life, glorification. We're eventually going to have great new bodies and no sin. Freedom to live in the power of the Holy Spirit while we're here on earth. Freedom from abandonment to never, ever, ever be separated by God. And this is the freedom that you and I, we have in Christ. He says, our chains are gone. We've been set free. I can't. Oh, I have a little thing. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Three words. Freedom in Christ has such transfer-making power and meaning. And it's really going to be the theme as I walk through chapters 6, 7, and 8. We're going to look at freedom from the master of sin, freedom from the penalty of the law. And as we come freedom from, there's always a freedom to, to live a new way and a new life. And quite honestly, Paul, in these chapters, he really kind of unloaded the wagon to the Romans and to us as he wrote through all of this. There's a lot of concepts in here. And quite honestly, I'm going to admit that I'm going to unload this wagon to you. Today, uh, I'm going to cover a lot of material, and I'm going to be giving some examples. Uh, don't get overwhelmed with this. There's a reason that these letters were read and reread and reread and read again, probably till they just withered. And that's because we're meant to digest, we're meant to process as we live out. And Paul explains a lot of these concepts in his other letters that we've already read and that we're going to continue to read. So just sit listen, uh, and just really uh, walk away a little bit with an awareness of what these freedoms are. I'm going to uh, go through all three chapters. Uh, it's most likely we'll be in a big group this whole time. I'm going to pause in between uh, and if I want to come up so we can uh, digest through, take a few minutes to just kind of digest through and see if you guys have any questions along the way. So freedom from the control of sin. 
Chuck Swindell, he tells a story, and he says, because Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, slaves throughout the United States were legally free as early as the first day of 1863. But what was legally true did not become a reality for most of the slaves until much, much later. The vast majority of the African American population had never known anything in America but slavery. And Shelby Foote, an author, described the phenomenon of the slaves being free but did not know it. He said, the word spread from Capitol Hill, out across the city, down to the valleys and fields of Virginia and the Carolinas, and even into the plantations of Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. Slavery, legally abolished, was the headlines. And yet, something amazing took place. The greater majority of the slaves in the South went right on living as though they were not emancipated. And that continued <coughs> all the way throughout the Reconstruction period. The slave remained locked in a caste system. And what a caste system is, it's a structure um, that what you were born into, you are. And so they lived and continued in this caste system of race etiquette, as rigid as any known informal bondage. Every slave could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had mumbled when asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation had gone into effect. I don't know anything about Abraham Lincoln, he said. Except he set us free. And I don't know anything about that. What was an absolute tragedy to begin with, that human beings were made the subjects of masters who kept them in cruel bondage, was made doubly so by the slaves' lack of knowledge and understanding they have been set free by the next If a person with the power, authority, and willingness to set captives free does so, it makes little difference if the captives don't know that they're free, does it? And don't know what it means to live in that freedom. So proclaiming freedom in Christ from sin is precisely Paul's burden in chapter. Don't you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into Jesus Christ's death? Don't you know that you were crucified with him? Don't you know that in Christ, you're no longer under the mastery of sin? Don't you know that whoever you offer yourself to, you will be enslaved to all a believer in Christ needs to do to be free from the slavery of mastery sin is offer ourselves to God. And he is a slave of righteousness. The African-American slaves, they were free from bondage, but they did not know it. The believers, uh, many of us as believers, have been freed from the mastery of sin, but don't know it. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, our relationship to sin changed. And Paul's message in Romans 6 is to declare that the gospel of Jesus Christ as an emancipation proclamation from the master of sin. And he gives us three instructions 
on living this freedom to sin. The first one he tells us is that we have to know this truth. It's, it's an understanding, this is a mental, it's an intellectual, it's of the mind. And uh, we're released from this bondage. But just because we're released from bondage doesn't guarantee that we experience that freedom. We have to begin with knowing. Knowing is mentioned three times in uh, verses 1 through 10. You might want to underline it and highlight it. Paul wants us to know a basic truth, that you and I as believers in Christ are identified with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Identification allows us to partake of everything that Jesus experiences. And Paul uses baptism to illustrate this truth. Baptism has really two basic meanings. The first one is to dip or to immerse. That's a, that's a little. But it also has a figurative meaning. It means to be identified with. Oops, can I do this? I found this. I thought it was a, a good depiction of what happened. So baptism by immersion pictures our identification with Christ. It's an outward symbol of what happens inwardly. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, uh, this immersion is also a picture of what the Holy Spirit does when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we receive the indwelling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what identifies, what unites us with Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. We all began in Adam, right? In sin. And if we're quite honest, uh, a lot of times the pen still feels as though we're still there. But the Adamic life had its own solidarity. It was bound in this network of sin and enslaved us, um, just as the Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites. But because of our living union with Christ, we have a totally different relationship with sin. When we died with Christ, our bodies were relieved from the submission to sin. We are dead to sin. It's like if, if, uh, if a drunk dies, he can no longer be tempted to drink. Can he? His body's dead to all of the physical senses. He can't see the alcohol, he can't smell the alcohol, he can't taste the alcohol, he can't desire it. Why? It's dead. In Jesus Christ, we have died to sin so that we no longer want to continue in sin. Our desires change. I mean, how many of you sit there and like, I don't want to sin? Our desires have changed in Christ. <clears throat> but we're not only dead to sin, we're also alive in Christ. We've been raised from the dead, and we now walk in the power of his resurrection. We walk in what he calls newness of life, newness of spirit, because we share his one of Rhonda's uh, favorite scriptures, Galatians 2.20, says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. And 
all insist that we have both the potential and the responsibility to walk in that. But, we've got this fallen nature, which is not changed at conversion. It gives sin a beachhead from which it can then attack and control. And Paul expressed that problem that we have in Romans 7, didn't he? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. Don't you guys feel like that? The willing is present in me, but the doing of the good? I fall short. While the body itself is not inherently evil, it is the container of our old sinful nature. Remember, even though... Uh, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We still have its mesh with our old nature. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute when we get into seven. So in this spiritual sense, we've died. Dead bodies don't respond to temptation in the spiritual sense, yeah. Dead bodies don't choose to do wrong. Temptation and sin have no power over what's dead. And someday we will experience this truth in the physical sense when we're glorified in our heavenly bodies. In the meantime, before we die physically and are raised to a new kind of life physically, we have the opportunity to live and experience this truth here. That we're under new management. We need a big sign. Under new management. We are subject to God's authority. We are no longer subject to the old Adam. We are no longer obligated to choose sin. The thing is, if Paul isn't describing an experience here, he's describing a fact. It is a fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he's saying it is a fact that you died. He says in Romans 6, for he who has died is freed from sin. He goes on to tell us in verse 11 to reckon this truth. I love that word reckon. This is his second instruction, but the first instruction really kind of hitting our head or intellectual. This one, he goes for our hearts. It's like you guys have to reckon this truth. Some Bibles may say consider. I like reckon. In South, this is a term we use all the time. Someone has to ask a question for my death, I reckon The thing is, what we're saying is we're like, well, I suppose so, I guess. That's not what he's saying to you. He's saying, um, please, that meaning doesn't apply. This word reckon is a translation of a Greek word that's used 41 times in the New Testament. 19 times in Romans. It's translated to count, to impute. You guys are going to recognize that word. It means to take into account, to calculate, to put to one's account. It simply means to believe that what God says in his word Paul didn't tell his readers to feel as if they were dead to sin or even 
to understand it fully, because it really is hard to get this concept. But he tells us to act on God's word and claim it for ourselves. And reckoning is not a claiming, it's not claiming a promise, but acting on a fact. God does not command us to become dead to sin. He tells us that we are dead. And we are alive unto God, and then he commands us to act on it. Even if we do not act on it, the fact's still true. It's like uh, when we endorse a, tra- a check. If we really believe that money is in the account, we're going to sign our name and make that deposit. Aren't we? <clears throat> on this, sign your name and make that deposit. That's what I'm saying. Collect that money. But once we encounter a new truth, we must discard our old manner of thinking and replace it with understanding. And here's where it gets really complex, right? Often that's not easy. You ever try to get rid of an old embedded habit? Oh my goodness. I'm still trying not to drink Dr. Peppers. <laughs> I can see you guys think I'm not doing well. I'm not. We've been conditioned by the old pattern of thinking, haven't we? And it's unconscious to behave a certain way. Furthermore, we become emotionally attached many times to our old manner of living, haven't we? Even if it's unpleasant. We're attached. Habits are really tough to break. So we must repeatedly and continually and daily reckon truth. We must decide it's true and calculate it this newness of life, this newness of spirit. We don't live in that old territory of Adam anymore. We're no longer part of the Adam caste system, are we? So we reckon it. We know it, we reckon it, and then we present this truth. And this is where it's our will, it's where we're really acting, acting out and um, this is his third instruction to master. Some of your Bibles may say yield or offer. <coughs> that word offer. Ourselves daily. The word present is found five times in this, in this section. You may want to highlight it and underline it as well. And it means to place at one's disposal, to offer as a sacrifice. According to uh, Romans 12, 1, which we're going to read in a couple weeks, the believer's body, our body, should be presented to the Lord daily as a living sacrifice. All of it. And for his glory. The Old Testament sacrifices were dead sacrifices, weren't they? No, that was just unfortunate. Glad we live in Christ. And the Lord may ask, some of us died for But he asked each and every one of us to live for him. What's involved in becoming a, a Christian and living in the newness of life is a change of your master. You've got to change your master. 
Once we know about our emancipation from slavery and we reckon ourselves to be free from that old bondage, we must present ourselves to our new master to enjoy the benefits of this new life. When I, at the very beginning, I listed a whole bunch of benefits, freedom, right? That was overwhelming. We're slaves do the bidding of their master. We are our master's instruments. We're utilized by him to accomplish his desires. Before emancipation, we could not refuse sin's authority. But now, we don't have to obey his commands. Rather than allowing ourselves to be instruments of sin and unrighteousness, we must now present our bodies for righteousness. The Greek word translated instrument it, uh, refers to weapons of war, which I thought, boy, I feel like I need the weapon of war in this world. <laughs> yeah. We're no longer to present our bodies as weapons to be used in sin to accomplish uh, evil ends or evil deeds, but to become foot soldiers, instruments of righteousness. We're not free just to go and do what we want when we want, but we are free to serve the new master. This is an act of the will. It's based on the knowledge of what we have that Christ has done for us. It's intentional. It's conscious. It's not some impulsive decision and some uh, uh, emotional stirring. Whatever you yield to becomes your master. So before we were enslaved, we were the slaves of sin. But now that we belong to Christ, we are free from that old slavery and made as servants of Christ. And Romans 6.19 suggests that the Christian ought to be as enthusiastic in yielding to the Lord as he was in yielding to sin. Actually thought about that. Am I as enthusiastic? Do I like that? I just on fire to to yield to God. Was like what's on fire to yield to sin? The unsaved person is free from righteousness, but his bondage to sin leads only uh, deeper into slavery and. The prodigal son is a great example of that. Remember that story of the prodigal son? When he was at home, he decided he wanted freedom. This reminded me of when I was living at home before I went to college. Why well, I thought I was under bondage. <laughs> oh, my parents. And they're so But I thought I was under bondage. I thought, man, I'm going to leave home. I am going to be free. I was the prodigal son. This story is my soul. Thought we were going to be free. He wanted his freedom, so he left home to find himself and enjoy himself. But his rebellion, what, led him deeper into sin. First, he kind of he became sin to his desires. Then he became slave to his desires. Then he became slave to his deeds. Notice the progression. And then he literally became a slave when his job was to take care of him. He wanted to find himself, but he lost himself. 
yourself. What you thought was freedom turned out to be the worst kind of slavery. It was only when he returned home to his father and presented himself to his father that he found freedom. And just as service to sin binds us closer to sin, service to righteousness frees us to live in harmony with our created purpose, which is to live in perfect, limitless communion with our heavenly Father. <coughs> and to live and enjoy uninhibited intimacy with each other. And Paul called this sanctification. I have a, a chart that I found. Uh, sanctification for Paul was both a state of being. We are set apart and made holy in Christ. And it was also, it's also a process. As we live here on earth, we are progressively sanctified as we present ourselves, as we present our bodies daily to God for His, purchase, His purposes. As we daily eliminate and say no to the flesh and yield to the Holy Spirit, we mature and grow in the likeness of Christ. And I found this, I thought this was a, I can't see what this far, was a pretty good chart. Uh, it, it started as we're reminded of our freedom and power over sin and what the future reality is, not what it may be, it is. That, that motivates us, doesn't it, to, to fight sin daily in our life, to fight our flesh. And as we begin uh, fighting and we see and experience the freedom, we set our minds on the things above, as we set our minds in the flames above, we see and we're reminded of the freedom, and we're, we're in this cycle of sanctification. It's opposite of, you remember the cycle of sin and judges? Complete opposite. If you serve a master, you can expect to see, receive wages. Sin pays your paycheck of death. But God, he pays us too. We get a paycheck of holiness, of sanctification, of eternal life, of glorification, of his Holy Spirit. I mean, the list can just go on and on. The old life, we, we produced fruit that made us ashamed. But our new life in Christ, we produced fruit that brings glory to God and joy in our lives. <clears throat> so like the emancipation, we must know, and we must reckon, and we must present. And this is a daily thing. This is a, a, a process. We don't just do it one time. This is ongoing. But unfortunately, our old master refuses to release its critic, doesn't it? The Emancipation Proclamation, it has gone out. You are free. But a war wages around us, which is Satan in the world, and also within us, which is our old nature. So the question of the day, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a daily question to answer. You wake up. Whose slave are you? 
And uh, there's a lot here, like I said, to digest. Uh, so I want to see if you guys have any uh, questions or thoughts or something to process. So chapter seven, freedom from the penalty of the law. So it says, okay, so since grace was multiplied, abounded, and I'm justified in Christ Jesus, how then shall I live? We live in freedom from the master of sin, and we live in freedom from the penalty of the law. So just as our relationship to sin changed, our relationship to the law also changed. And Paul basically says, you were not justified by keeping the law, didn't he? That was uh, Romans 1 through 5. Now he says, you cannot be sanctified by keeping the law. In Romans 7, Paul really reveals how we're delivered from the penalty of the law and unto grace. And he begins by showing us that we have this new relationship to the law because of our own union with Jesus Christ. He uses the illustration of what the husband and the wife. And so uh, when a man and a woman marry, they're united for life, right? Uh, marriage is a physical union. Uh, in Genesis 2, it says they shall be one flesh and can only be broken by a physical cause. One such cause is death. As long as they live, the husband and the wife are under the authority of the law and of marriage. And if the woman leaves the man, remember, and marries another, she commits adultery. But if the husband dies, she's free to remarry because she is no longer a wife. It is death that has broken the marriage relationship and set her free. And it, it really kind of appears at first that Paul kind of confuses this illustration a little bit. Um, he says, when we were unsaved, we were under the authority of God's law. We were condemned by that law. When we trusted Christ, we were united to him. Remember, we died to the law just as we died to the flesh. The law did not die, we did. But Paul's illustration from marriage really is that the husband who died and it's the wife who married again. So if you and I are represented by the wife, and the law is represented by the husband, then the application just doesn't seem to fit this illustration, does it? If the wife died in the illustration, the only way she could marry again would be to come back from the dead. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to teach here. When we trusted Christ, we died to the law. But in Christ, we arose from the dead and now are married. We are now united to Christ to live a new kind of life. The law did not die because God's law, in a sense, still rules, doesn't it? We died to the law, and it no longer has dominion over us, just like sin no longer has dominion over us. But we're not lawless. We serve a new master. We are united to Christ. We're sharing his life, which I have to tell you just boggles my mind. <laughs> we share everything of his life. And thus, we're walking in the newness of life. Romans 8, 4 
it kind of gives the climax of this argument. He, he says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but like what Rhonda was talking about, after the spirit. In the old life of sin, we brought forth fruit unto death. But in the new life of grace, we bring forth fruit to God. It simply means that the motivation and really the um, dynamic of our lives does not come from the law. It comes from God's grace through our union with Christ. The law cannot exercise authority over a dead person, can it? Just like sin can. Death means deliverance. But we were delivered that we might serve. We were delivered for a purpose. The Christian life is not one of independence and rebellion. We died to the law that we would be married to Christ. We were delivered from the law that we would serve Christ. That's where um, there is a change in this relationship to the law. The law is still there, but it has no authority over the woman because guess what? Her husband's dead. So what is different about Christian service as opposed to our old life of sin? To begin with, the Holy Spirit. He energizes us and empowers us as we seek to obey and serve the Lord. Under law, no enablement was given, was it? Under law, we didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's commandments were written on stones, and they were read to people. But under grace, God's word is written in our hearts. We walk again in the newness of life, and we serve in newness of spirit. And you and I are no longer under the authority of the law. Then it goes to kind of that question, so what good is the law, right, if we don't need it anymore? So Paul goes on and he explains, he talks about how the law reveals sin. Uh, Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, where no law is, there is no transgression. The law is a mirror. It's like when you look in, in, in a mirror and it reveals what's going on inside. We wouldn't know that unless there was the law. The interesting um, note, Paul didn't use murder or stealing uh, or adultery uh, in his uh, discussion, did he? He used coveting. I thought that was pretty interesting. This was the last of the Ten Commandments, and I think it's one of the ones that just never gets any notice whatsoever. But the interesting thing about coveting is uh, it differs from the other nine commandments in that it's an inward attitude. It's like what you were talking about in Eden. There was a desire, a want, a craving. It wasn't uh, an outward action. It leads to that covetousness. That's a hard tongue twister word. Leads to the breaking of the other commandments. It is, they say, what's called an insidious sin, meaning it has this gradual cumulative effect. It's very subtle, isn't it? That most people never recognize it in our own lives. Um, a good uh, example uh, you can read on your own is the rich young ruler in Mark 10. 
He's a good sample of the use of the law to reveal sin um, and show a man their need for a savior. The law reveals our sin, it also arouses our sin. Since we have this sinful nature, the law is bound to arouse that nature, kind of like um, how a magnet draws uh, steel. There's something uh, in the human nature that wants to rebel whenever the law is given, isn't there? Um, for me, it's the speed limit. If it says 50, I want to go 55. <laughs> I know exactly how much over you can go, and the police won't pull you over. No comments. <laughs> Ron just had to follow me before, and the first thing we do when we get the car, you go so fast. <laughs> if you instruct a child not to go near water, what is the one thing they do? They go near the water. Why? Romans 8 says it, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law, for it is not even able to do so. So believers who try to live by rules and regulations discover that their legalistic system, it only arouses sin. And it creates more problems. And the churches in Galatia, they were pretty legalistic. They experienced all kinds of trouble. Uh, Galatians 5, it says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Ooh. Their legalism didn't make them more spiritual. It made them more sinful, didn't it? Why? Because the law arouses sin in our nature. The law also kills. Uh, Galatians 3, it says, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But it's not. The law cannot give life. It can only show the sinner that he is guilty and condemned. This explains why uh, legalistic Christians struggle in growing and bearing spiritual fruit. They're living by law, and the law kills. The law was written on stone and cannot give us life. It cannot change you. It cannot change me. It cannot enable me to be good. And it cannot set me free. Only the Holy Spirit can give us illumination. Only the Holy Spirit can help us grow and understand in spiritual truths. Only the Holy Spirit can enlighten and enable us. The law can't. The law also shows the sinfulness of sin. That's like a tongue twister. Unsaved people know that there is no such thing as, um, people know that there is no, there is such a thing as sin, but they do not realize the sinfulness of sin. Many Christians do not realize the true nature of sin. We excuse our sins with words like it's a mistake. Well, that's just one of my weaknesses. But God condemns our sins and tries to get us to see that they are exceedingly sinful. Until we realize how wicked sin really is, we never want to oppose it and live in victory. 
Rhonda's teaching last week, I think, was so great on this, at revealing really the sinfulness of sin. I sat down with that booklet and, and walked through that. And there was a lot of prayer going on. <laughs> and a lot of just help, Lord. So if you miss it, uh, go online and listen to it. It was very, very good. So Paul's argument here is tremendous. He says, one, the, the law is not sinful. It is holy. It is just. It is good. Two, but the law reveals sin. It arouses sin and then uses sin to slay us. So if something as good as the law accomplishes these results, then something is radically wrong somewhere, isn't it? He concludes, see how sinful sin is when it can use something good like the law to produce something tragic. Sin is indeed exceedingly sinful. The problem, he says, is not with the law. It is good. Problems with my sinful nature. And then we get to that point where we're just like, oh, this sinful nature, huh? Billy Graham tells, I think, he tells a great story in his book um, uh, on the Holy Spirit. And he says, an Eskimo fisherman came to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought his two dogs with him. One was white and the other was black. He had taught them to fight on command. And every Saturday afternoon in the town square, the people would gather and these two dogs, they would fight and the fishermen would take bets. On one Saturday, the black dog would win. On another Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fishermen always won. So his friends asked him how he did it. He said, well, I starve one and I feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he's stronger. And Billy Graham, Billy, I feel like on a first name basis with him, good old Billy. He goes on and he says the story about the two dogs is appropriate because it tells us something about the inner warfare that comes into the life of a person who's born again. I had to put the little dog up. It was just so cute. But he doesn't look very repentant, does he? I know. We have these two natures within us, both struggling for mastery. Which one will dominate us? And it depends on which one we feed. If we feed our spiritual lives and allow the Holy Spirit to empower us, he will have rule over us. That's why we have, have quiet time. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in God's word. We come together in Bible study and fellowship. We attend church. We serve together. We feed this um, the Holy Spirit nature. If we starve our spiritual natures and instead feed the old, sinful nature, then that flesh, it, it likes to come forward and attack. I think all of us uh, can identify with the Apostle Paul when he said, 
For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I think a, a lot of Christians, and I've heard some this morning, have said things like this. Since I became a Christian, I have had struggles within that I've never had before. Uh, I didn't realize I was such a sinner. I never wanted to sin like this before, and I thought God had saved me from my sins. But Billy Graham, he went on to say, he said, actually, strange as it may seem, this condition is something to be thankful for. He said, it is an evidence that the Holy Spirit has come into your life. It's illuminating the darkness of sin. It's sensitizing your conscience to sin. It's awakening you uh, a, a new desire to be clean and free of sin, from sin before God. And these old sins were there before, these old temptations were strongly there before, but they didn't appear evil and abhorrent to you when you were in your old nature. In Christ, they are. Because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives, and we're a new person, and we're born again by this same Spirit. And he says, everything looks different now. And we suddenly have all sorts of struggles against us. And Paul talks about uh, being in intense spiritual battle. In Ephesians, he says, For our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly places. So there's extreme spiritual forces. It's Satan and, and the world which are at work, and they seek to keep us from, from God's will, from uh, being in his will. The thing is, uh, Billy went on to say, he said, but we must not always blame Satan for everything that goes wrong or for every sin we commit. He says, because often it's our own sinful nature that's at work within us. Galatians 5 says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do things that you please. He says, that's the picture. He says, I'm sure you kind of felt a lot of times just like Paul did when he just um, struggled. Maybe your sin, uh, is wrong sexual desires or pride or gluttony. I love that word, gluttony. <laughs> Laziness or anger or some other driven sin. But you feel that same inner struggle. And sometimes you conclude just as Paul did, wretched man am I. But as Rhonda said, we're not stopping here. <laughs> because... He goes on to conclude what? In verse 25 and in Romans 8, chapter 2, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sin no longer reigns, but it still fights. 
uh, Horatius uh, Bonner, a, a theologian, he said, while conversion calms one kind of storm, it raises another, which is to be lifelong. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and put on the new self, which is in accordance with the, um, and put on the new self, which is in accordance with the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So that new man is regenerate. Um, He's uh, from the old, uh, and he is new man, and he's becoming a partaker in the divine nature. But in no sense is the old man made over and improved. Paul personifies really the struggle of the two natures that's within us, the old, which is the adamant nature, and the divine that we received through the new birth of the Holy Spirit. He says that that black dog and that white dog are often fighting. As long as there is not a presenting of the mind and the body every moment of the day, he says that that new nature, it will assert itself. And then ask the question, which dog are you feeding? You and I have a choice to either yield to the spirit and the new force of our lives or the old force of sin. First uh, John 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's a fact. <laughs> and if I cooperate with the Holy Spirit and turn to him for help, like this little guy on the right-hand side, that temptation, and he reaches out to God, if I cooperate with the Holy Spirit and turn to him for help, he will give me the power to resist. And he will make me stronger. And he will empower me as a result of every test that goes on daily. So then, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a daily question, which dog are you going to feed? Those don't look like fighting dogs, though, do they? And I'm going to break here before we move into eight and see if you want to have any questions as we kind of wrestle with seven and talked a little bit about what some of your questions were. Could you unpack just a little bit what you mean about your life that'll help me know more? Well, I mean, I'm not like the law of say, don't eat a pig is not. It's different, but you know what I'm saying? Like, that was, you know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, the law is good, right? So, anything that God would say is good or righteous was the law then, and it's the law now. But there's a law of love, which is part of the, te I mean, that's the Ten Commandments. Uh, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love others as yourself. That's a law, right? Me going and taking that, is that me loving her? There's law. So I don't know if this will help. This is what helped me this week, thinking through this. <laughs> <laughs> so back, back in 
Genesis, when, and I already kind of referred to this, when there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's another way of saying the law, the tree of what is right and what's wrong. The, the law of what God says is what's right and what's wrong, right? God never wanted us to have that to ourselves to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. God said, why don't you be in relationship with me and I will determine what's right and wrong. So once again, God gave the law to help them see this is what is right and this is what's wrong. So it's it's always good. Like the law is always, um, is always good. What has changed is me having a relationship with God and Christ keeping the law. So now in Christ, I want to please God. So the law showed that even though I want to please God and I want to keep the law and I want to do what's right, apart from God, I can't. So that's what we're dead to, is apart from God, living out what we believe is right and wrong. And it's gotten bad to a place in our world where it's like, and I'm just, each person can decide for themselves what's right and wrong. That's why we see so much chaos. But we have been set free from that to live to God, period, with his spirit living inside of us. So it's a difference between a relationship and us out here on our own, with our own will and our own desires, wreaking havoc, just, just tossing us around and making us feel wretched. Um, God never wanted us to have life that way. I mean, when you see when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing that they felt was shame. And then the first relationship after Adam and Eve were two brothers who killed one another. So taking into our own hands a sense of what is right and wrong and feeling like we can make these decisions and we are capable apart from God to do those things even has ramifications in our relationships. So Jesus is showing us, have a relationship with me. And actually, I'm putting my spirit in you to give you the power to want to live for me. So it's not so much that the law has become something that we need to die to. What we're dead to is having to decide and take into our own hands doing right song. We just, we're meant always from the very beginning to have a relationship with God. Is that helping anybody besides no? So talk, talk to us about your, what do you mean from your life? I guess I guess when I hear the word the law I, I read it and I think like oh this is what the Jewish people must have thought like the 600 or more laws that were in the Old Testament that's what they yeah. thought of. Yeah. But that's not something that's ever been part of my I mean the Ten Commandments yes but like other things that are more specific mm-hmm. has never been part of like my life or my culture or my world. So when he talks about the law, I'm trying to make it more personal to myself. The things that you know that are good and right to do. Like it is good to, for Shauna to leave our new guest alone and not mess with her. <laughs> <laughs> but instead to pursue life. <laughs> um, those things that keep you up 
what is the perfect way of raising my kids so they can be perfect kids, so they can have a perfect life, so they can have this perfection. We're all meant to do life with God in a relationship with Him, not just find a set of rules that will allow me to be perfect and take control of myself like He just says well, I'm listening to all of this. Can you, can hear me. you guys can hear me without this, can't you? Yeah. Hello, hello? See, it's not on. Um, <laughs> That's the dead one. Okay, that was dead So when I was, as you were teaching, thinking that sin, I mean, literally, the law has always been. So there was God's law, because it's good, fundamentally good, was in the garden. Mm -hmm. But you don't know, the law will bring to the forefront what your sin is. So that's why the law, and it's an integral part of what God's holiness is about, and, and his righteousness is about, is bringing to the forefront Something because you wouldn't know. If you don't know the law, if you don't know what God expects, then you are not aware of the fact that you're sinning. So for me, and I thought it was kind of cool, thinking through that, looking that up to where, so it literally was, his laws were in the garden. But where was it that you saw God's laws? In the garden. What did they do that then brought to the forefront that they ran and hid? Because it brought them to the forefront their sin nature that they wouldn't even have been aware of unless and until God, because God gave them when you were talking, you and I this morning, they coveted. They went after something that he told them. He exposed to them when he said, you can have everything here, but do not eat. Do not take what is not supposed to be yours in the garden. And they coveted after something that the one that really started coveting, so even in heaven, there had to be God's laws, and somewhere it was broken, and that's where our enemy was basically cast out. So knowing that the laws are good, there's good things to look at, but to stay focused and continually read so that you know what God expects from you. But I thought it was good. I had, a, I had a thought that came in and then it went, so I had to find my book and bring it back. <laughs> So part of the law, as, as you guys remember, when we studied that, was that when you kept the law, you were blessed. When you don't keep the law, you are That's what came with the law, right, in the Old Testament. But the law could never bring life. So now in Christ and through the Spirit, we have life available to us in God and now this whole idea of what you do bringing a blessing or what you do bringing curse has been all fulfilled in Christ Jesus and so now in Christ we have life period but what I love this is this is this was my wow this week God gave the law like it was really good for him to give it. We would think, well, that was our pride would want to say, how dare somebody give something that would expose our sin? <laughs> like, that was not nice. 
but God is about a relationship with us. So he actually gave the law to bring sin to its height so we can go, oh, that's sin, and it's really bad. It's really bad. So then what does God do? Now that sin has been exposed for not being able to bring life, the blessings and the curses are just causing chaos everywhere. Even though there are some Jews that might want to fulfill the law, they just can't. What did God do? That's chapter 8, which I'll answer. If Shauna in her teaching does not answer that question, let's come back to it. But she might answer it when she teaches on chapter 8. Any So good question, because that's where this all goes, right? And that's, that's the good stuff. Um, any questions on chapter 7 before we move on to chapter 8? That might be our bridge. TK might have just built the bridge to chapter 8. Okay, chapter 8. Chapter 8. This is the freedom to live a new way and a new life in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8 is really the Christian's kind of declaration of freedom. For in it Paul declares the spiritual freedoms that we enjoy because of our union with Christ. And there is a huge, infinite emphasis on the Holy Spirit in this chapter who's mentioned 19 times. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We, so we go on and we're like, So since grace has multiplied and abounded and I'm justified in Christ, how should I live? We live a new life. We live a new way in the Spirit. Charles Trumbull, he put, 
people have asked or thought, why is chapter eight, even Rhonda's like, chapter eight is my favorite chapter. It's so many people, especially 828, right? We can almost all quote it. And Charles uh, Trumbull, he put it this way. He said, the eights of Roman has become um, precious to me, beginning with no condemnation, ending with no separation, and in between there is no defeat. This wondrous chapter sets forth the gospel and plan of salvation, the life of freedom and victory, the hopelessness of the natural man and the righteousness of the born again. The indwelling of Christ and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body and the blessed hope of Christ's return, he says. The working together of all things for our good, every tense of the Christian life, past, present, and future and the glorious and climatic song of triumph. There is no separation from the love of God, which is in us, Jesus Christ our Lord. So perhaps Romans 8 is so well loved, he says, because it addresses human beings' greatest sense of need. Our need for protection, our need for security, our need for safety. We start off in, in Romans 3, we have this new way, a freedom from condemnation. And Romans 3.20 shows the therefore of condemnation, but Romans 8.1 gives the therefore of no condemnation, right? Takes away the punishment. And the basis of this wonderful assurance is the phrase, in Christ. In Adam, we were condemned. In Christ, there is no condemnation. The verse doesn't say no mistakes, no failures, or even no sins. We do fail, we do make mistakes, we do sin. Abraham lied about his wife twice. <laughs> David committed adultery. Peter tried to kill a man with a sword. I'll have to admit, I wouldn't want him in my army because he couldn't hit anything. <laughs> Got the ear. But to be sure, they suffered consequences because of their sins, but they did not suffer condemnation, did they? The law condemns, but the believer has a new relationship with the law. Therefore, we cannot be condemned. I think Warren uh, Worsby, he calls it <clears throat> the law of double jeopardy which states that a person cannot be tried twice for a crime, right? And since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and my sin, and since you and I are in Christ, God will not condemn us. Not only that, but our sins are removed. They no longer exist. Remember the uh, old Etch-a-Sketch? Remember playing with that? You could, you could draw on it, and then you just went like, what, shoo! and it wiped it away, that's what happens. You have been made free from the law of sin and death. You now have life in the spirit. We've been moved into a new realm of life in Christ. And I have this. This is our old realm. Uh, in Adam, I can't see from, Slaves to sin, we were ruled by the law, we were dominated by the flesh, and we were condemned to eternal death. But in 
Christ, we live in a whole new realm. We're represented in Christ. We're a new person, a new self. We have a new master. We're slaves to righteousness and to God. We're ruled by grace. We're ruled by grace. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have our destiny, which is eternity in Christ. That's what's new. We've moved into this new realm. The law, again, does not have the power to produce holiness. It can only reveal and condemn sin. But the indwelling Holy Spirit, it enables us to walk in obedience to God's will. The righteousness that God demands in his law is fulfilled in us through the Spirit's power. And the Spirit-led Christian, as we present ourselves to God, we experience that sanctifying work in the life of the Spirit. Philippians 2 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have this new way. We have freedom from condemnation. We also have this new way of freedom from defeat. We have um, not just the Spirit, but the Spirit has us. And that's how we can share with this abundance, this victorious life that is ours in Christ. We have no obligation to the flesh, because the flesh only brought trouble in our life, doesn't it? I think that's why it's got a good old skull and bones. <laughs> Death is only trouble. We, have no, we do have an obligation to the Holy Spirit, for it's the Spirit that convicted us. It revealed Christ to us and imparted eternal life to us when we trusted Christ. Because he is the Spirit of life, he can empower us to obey Christ as we present and we yield ourselves to him daily. And he can enable us to be more like Christ. But he is also the spirit of death in this way. He enables us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. As we present our body to the spirit, he applies to us, in us, the death and the resurrection of Christ. He puts to death the things of the flesh, and he reproduces within us the things of the spirit, the things of life. So there's no need for us to be defeated or to feel defeated. We can present our body to God by faith and overcome our old nature. And the spirit of life, when we do that, empowers us. It gives us the strength and the power. And it puts to death and overcomes the sins of the flesh. So we have this new way. We have no condemnation, and we have freedom from defeat. We also have this new life, and it's a spirit of adoption. And Paul connects, really, our past redemption from the penalty of the law to our future joy in heaven. Being a child of God also means that we are heirs of God. God adopts his people from the world for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and he puts us in a new relationship to himself, that new realm. God has not yet given us everything 
We have this wonderful inheritance waiting for us in heaven. He's given us a lot here, hasn't he, though? But he's gonna have, we're going to have so much more in heaven. We are currently, we are redeemed, we are justified, adopted, but not yet glorified. And the Spirit, of course, continues to be a dominant element in this. So those who belong in the Spirit are God's daughters. That's what we are. And the Spirit makes us actively aware of our status, that we are children and that we can enjoy not only what he's gifted us here on earth, but what is to come, which is going to be absolutely amazing. We look forward confidently to this glory that awaits us, but we still have to live out our lives in the age of sin and death and sickness. But we do have that spirit of adoption and something that we look forward to. We have a new life, a spirit of glory. We're promised a future glory. And Warren, when I was reading through uh, his commentary, he said, perhaps no truth is so glaringly absent from the understanding of most Christians than the truth and the implications that this world is not our home. When it finally settles into the heart and mind of us that we are aliens and strangers in this world, many things change. Our present sufferings will be viewed against the backdrop of future glory, and it lowers today's difficulties to being just insignificant by comparison. In fact, the whole creation is, he says, is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. And in some, in some unexplained sense, the entire creation's subjection to frustration awaits the glorious revelation when the curse to which God subjected his creation will finally be lifted. It's when we, the co-heirs, which just still boggles my mind, we're co-heirs with Christ, inhabit the glorious new heavens and new earth. When the curse is lifted, the creation will once again be as Rhonda was talking about, an Edenic environment, suitable for us to inhabit and to reflect his glory, what he originally created for us to live in. But at present, the creation reflects the curse of sin, and it groans, and we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. But when sin is finally removed from all of us, the creation is going to just spring forth in glory. The future is glorious for us because of the full realization of what we only get a taste of right now. Just get this nibble of our adoption as a daughter and our redemption of our bodies. But the first fruits of the Spirit is the down payment. It's a certainty that we have from God that we will one day enter into our full inheritance as children of God. But now we and the earth with us, we groan, don't we? Painfully until that day. 
Our hearts break over the tragedy and the despair of the lives in this world and what's going on. And I think so many times we forget that we live in the midst of the curse. But in the midst of our groanings, we have the spirit and the guarantee of what is to come. And one day we're going to enter into this fullness of the, our adoption as daughters fully and complete. And we'll probably look back and wonder how we could have felt so at home in this world. But our patience is going to be rewarded because Paul never intended to communicate to the Romans that their lives as believers are going to be easy. In fact, he took great pains uh, in this letter to be brutally honest. Paul didn't hold anything back, did he? He really was honest. We live in a cursed world. We groan. We are in labor pains, which Megan understands. <laughs> We long for the redemption of our bodies. And the one thing that living in this world requires is patient hope. In fact, from the moment of our salvation, hope becomes our watchword, doesn't it? Because we are saved by faith, but faith sees nothing. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11.1. And all of us who live by faith were called to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's Hebrews 6. And that includes those that Paul writes to in Rome. And it includes you and it includes me. And this patience is going to be rewarded when we enter into our full measure of adoption, when we enter in glorification. We have that to look forward to. We have this spirit of adoption. We have this spirit of hope and glory. And we also have this spirit of purpose. And Rhonda sent me a great email um, this week, an article, and I told her, I said, I'm going to use that. But it was talking about how God has a plan for your life. And it says that this statement has become something of a truism among evangelicals, whether it introduces a gospel presentation or comes during a time of suffering and trial as a source of comfort in knowing God is sovereign over our sorrow. In the midst of all this turmoil, we take comfort in the truth that God has a plan for our lives. Don't we say that a lot in the midst of things that God has a plan for your life? We express our trust in God's sovereignty over our circumstances, that no matter what comes, God is there and he is working all things together for our good. That's at Romans 8.28. Even when we can't see the plan of God, we believe that he is caught. We believe that he is not caught by surprise by our circumstances. God has a plan for your life, we say. But when the New Testament talks about God's plan, it is not always in reference to circumstances that happens to us. It also refers to blessings that happen through us. In other words, God's plan doesn't just involve your circumstances. 
It involves the blessing you pass on to others. I have to be honest, I hadn't thought about that. Usually when I look at circumstances, I'm thinking about me, what God's doing with me. But God's plan isn't just about how things are working out for me or for you, but how you are working out your salvation for the good of others. And God is the one who is working in both you, in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. He goes on to say there's a good purpose behind your good works. This is God's plan, that you fulfill your purpose through the good works you do. When Jesus calls you to salvation, he calls you to service. We are stewards of the gospel. I talked about that earlier. And we are responsible for good works. Just consider the logic of Paul's letter to Ephesians. The letter opens with the marvelous run-on sentence, which Paul loves to do, doesn't he? Long run-on sentences that showcases the Trinitarian God, which is God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, at work fulfilling his cosmic plan of redemption. Ephesians 2 then reminds us that it is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. But right after that explanation of the gospel, we see God's plan culminating in good deeds he has mapped out for us. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God's plan. Good works prepared ahead of time. Works that include the coming together of Jew and Gentile in order to exalt the Savior together. Works that make the church a foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. Good works are our destiny. So this is God's plan, that we would do good works that benefit the people around us and bring glory to Christ our King. We might say then that God doesn't just doesn't have just a plan for your life, but also a plan through your life. The master plan involves not only the circumstance you will confront, but also the good works you will accomplish. God will bless others through you. God has a plan through your life. I thought that as soon as I saw that article, I was like, yes, I have to read that. We have um, a spirit of purpose, that God has this plan. And I really have to say, I sat down and I thought through that, because normally I'm thinking of myself. And how when I'm going through this, how what, God, what God's doing in me. But that changed my view. <laughs> that he's working out my salvation for the good of others. For me, too, but for the good of others. Well, that expands the purpose, doesn't it? It makes us look outward. Yeah. I'm going to end here with we have this new life. We have a spirit of security. And Paul basically <laughs> says that as a child of God that we are secure. We love this, don't we, these verses. There's nothing that can separate us. Not one single thing. He didn't leave anything out. What you probably don't realize as we're reading through Romans, that it's just um, a few short years later 
that Paul's going to come under the brutal hand of Nero. And he's going to die. I find that sad for all of a sudden some reason. Boy, he could have included, because he faced them, the Roman emperors in this list, couldn't he? But he would probably find them trivial. Just kind of speed bump along the way to heaven. Because he says, let's consider trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, sword. None of these things, not one, are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. He says, let's consider the giant spectrums. It's kind of the impediments. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor the height, nor the depth, nor any powers, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing. Name something he forgot. Nothing is going to keep us from our love and our security in God. Paul was this man, he had this unshakable confidence, didn't he? And the love of God. He feared nothing tangible, no tangible hardships. He feared um, nothing else. He feared nothing um, that kind of creeps a lot of times into our own consciousness. Like, am I suffering for a reason? What if I wake up on the other side of death and discover I've been fooled? What if I don't wake up on the other side? Where will the love of God be? A lot of Christians would consider these questions, and Paul is just bold enough and confident enough to get them on the table and answer them. He wanted us and he wanted the Romans to deal with them. His answer then and his answer now is nothing is going to separate us. He basically says, in chapters 6, 7, and 8. It's like, guys, the chains are gone. We've been set free. We're now free to live in the Holy Spirit. We're free to serve God. We're free to live and please and glorify God. So then the question we have each day as we wake up is then how am I going to live that out today? That's a process, though, isn't it? I'm going to end chapter 8 on that. Oh, God. We're out of time. Yeah. So for next week, here's what I'm thinking. So, Megan, you're not going to be able to teach? Or you might be able to. I don't think so. Okay, she just got an email that she has to sign up camp for kindergarten, and she was going to teach. Kind of what I said it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we want that for you. So I'm, I'm making an audible, right? That's what the about the law of it means something to us but at the same time the application of it is is just a little bit different so here's, here's my thoughts so read through that let's look through that read through that but what if we this week really every day so i'm setting that a little challenge every day you read through chapter eight just to meditate and now that we've kind of had some of the teaching
teaching, especially of chapter 6, right? Because it's in Christ Jesus that we have the Spirit. We don't get the Spirit through the law. We get the Spirit through Christ. So read through 8, just kind of meditate on it a little bit every day. And then at the end say, Abba, I belong to you. Like if you really believe that Jesus Christ lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you deserve to die, and raised and you walk in his new life through his resurrection, you have the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk a little bit next week about the nation of Israel, but what if we revisit again a little bit more of what life in the Spirit is like? Because I didn't get to really TK's question and the question about how we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? But also for you to really kind of walk in that this week. Abba, I belong to you. And maybe just as you're reading Romans 8, and then throughout your day, Abba, I belong to you. And then let's get together and talk about what happens with our little meditation experiment. Um, and especially if you're facing some type of sin. I read this week that Martin Luther, when he faced temptation, he said, I've been baptized! That's what he would say. Can you imagine his wife? Oh, he just faced some temptation, I guess. <laughs>